Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is Lawrence Hester. Lawrence was the founder and CEO of Fair Harbor, the leading online booking platform for tours and activity providers. Under Lawrence's leadership, Fair Harbor grew from a small, family-run business to the largest software provider in the industry, with over 15,000 clients worldwide, ultimately being acquired by Booking Holdings in April 2018. Lawrence shares how his experience selling gourmet croutons, yeah, you heard that right, croutons, led to his biggest lesson and ultimately his success with Fair Harbor. Lawrence, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure. Great to see you all. Yeah, and a special treat calling in from our first foreign guest calling in from Amsterdam. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. But I'm not a foreigner. Maybe over here. <laughs> for, first, uh, for, first guest. American living abroad. Calling in from abroad, at least. Expat, expat. Um, there we well, go. Would love to start out and, and just get a little bit of background for folks who aren't familiar. Love to hear the story of, of how you ended up in, in Colorado originally and starting um, Fair Harbor. Yeah, so my, my brother and I started a company called Fair Harbor, with a couple other guys in January 2013. And uh, the reason we ended up in Colorado, or I ended up in Colorado in 2015, is that I hired another of my siblings to start up our customer service arm on the you know, quote unquote mainland. So that's what we called it. Still call it to, to this day at Fair Harbor. And uh, he happened to live in Boulder, Colorado. And before we knew it, he was hiring people there. Just an amazing hiring environment. And that became our largest office. And so I made the jump from the, the beaches of Hawaii to the mountains of Colorado. Fairly good trade off. Both have a hell of a lot of sun in 2015. And tell us a little bit about the, the Fair Harbor and, and kind of what that journey was like. Started the, the company. I was sleeping on the ground at my brother's girlfriend's house. It was us and two engineers and a designer. I actually took, it's a, a tour and activity reservation software. So you have tour companies using the software to manage all their day-to-day operations, online, phone bookings, etc. And uh, we actually answered all of our first clients' phone calls for the better part of a year. So we were starting up our, our tech startup and also the reservationist for North Shore Catamaran. And I think they finally took my voice off their phone number this year. It used to be that you'd call up and you'd hear, Hello, welcome to North Shore Catamaran. Press one for reservations, two for directions. Ultimately, they all directed you to book online because that's how Fair Harbor got paid. But anyway, it was a long haul and we grew fairly slowly at the beginning because we were almost all of the software on day one. Email notifications was actually my brother and I. So we get a booking. The developers would tell us, hey, a card was just charged in Stripe. Can you please email so-and-so their confirmation email? And we'd quickly copy, paste, etc., send it out. And uh, that went fairly well until someone managed to get the owners on the phone and ask them why they booked a, a whale watch for May 
but got a confirmation for February. Because one of us went a little too quick, bad copy paste. But anyway, slowly, slowly build out the, the software and the client base. At the end of the, the first year, we only had 25 clients in the state of Hawaii. And uh, now Fair Harbor has over 18,000 clients worldwide. Eventually, we sold the business to Booking.com in 2018. Jumping right to the end. <laughs> that, well, that's, that's amazing. That's what obviously got you to, to Amsterdam. But I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, I think what's unique, I mean, obviously, Chris and I run a venture capital firm. We think venture capital is a great way to finance a business, but certainly not the only way. And I think you guys never took institutional investment the whole way, right? No, we took uh, friends and family. So we raised $3 million from friends and family over the first four years, 11 months. And then we actually had a client write us a check for $5 million in our last year before we sold the business, but never went the institutional route. And I think my biggest lesson there is not my less biggest lesson, but you know, when you're, you're playing the startup game, you often get so caught up in how much money your competitors have raised and who's on their board. Well, guess what? Your clients don't give an F who's on their board and how much money they raise. They care how good of a product you have how good of a customer service team you have. And a lot of the people we were competing against at the time when we'd only raised 3 million had actually raised over 50 million. And lo and behold, we smoked them because we cared more. We had a better product. And uh, I think another piece is we didn't have a board that was directing the company. We were really directing the company based on customer feedback. So, Lawrence, it sounds like you're, we're maybe getting a bit of ahead of ourselves, but before we do and, and come back to that, we'd love to hear about your experience in Colorado. Sort of yeah. what did you see with the, the tech ecosystem here? And you, I know it was only a few years that, that you, you were here before you moved to Amsterdam, but even in that period, did you see anything changing as well? Well, absolutely. I think, number one, we got very, very lucky and fortunate that we landed in Colorado to grow our team. For Fair Harbor. I know uh, back in the day when we first moved there, I was on a panel and there was another startup talking that day about how they had gone out and solicited recruits in Salt Lake City and Austin and Denver and this magic formula spit out Denver. And we just happened to land in Denver again because my, my brother. And what's really amazing is just the number of smart, hardworking people that are available to really propel your company forward in the city of Denver. That's the number one thing when you think about being a successful tech company is you may have amazing tech, but ultimately it's the people that are coming to work for you every day that are going to make your venture successful. And that's what was so special about Denver was honestly, the labor pool was incredible, just absolutely incredible. And you know, cost of living as well, I think is really important to mention there. I know a lot of people tried to start up uh, similar startups to Fair Harbor, SaaS businesses in San Francisco. And the math really doesn't work out because you can't pay your employees a livable wage where they can enjoy themselves and have your company work from day one. You know, ultimately, the math really needs to work for your company to go forward and what's beautiful about Colorado is that you can pay a livable wage both for your employees and for your business. And I always, I always talk about that. It's a really important balance. If you pay too much, 
and the math doesn't work out, your company's going to go under and no one's going to have an ongoing paycheck from you. So it's a really delicate balance, really important, especially in today's day and age. But that was the beauty of Denver is you were able to, to do both. And I thought that was just absolutely incredible. Yeah, you know, Lawrence, a few things comes to mind here and you, you say all that. One, uh, embarrassingly, in my last company, we actually did put together a formula to figure out what city we should open a next office in. And it did spit out Denver, thankfully, but uh, <laughs> you know, it took us a lot more math to come to the thing that you, you came to from a decision perspective. And I think on the talent piece, um, you know, I know it's been a while since, since you've been here. That talent piece is just accelerated as well. It, it is amazing. Just the talent we've seen in the last few years, right? Building on top of the talent that was already here. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. I know I've heard it from you all. And uh, shout out to my sister-in-law who was on your podcast not too long ago, Jacqueline, who's a partner at Foundry. That really is the number one thing about Denver is the people that are there and the ecosystem they've built. Uh, Lawrence, let me know, I mean, to the extent you're keeping tabs on it, what's a company that's here right now that you're excited about? Well, I have to just give a shout out to the old one, the one I've now left, my little baby, Fair Harbor. The, the management team that's taken over, Ted Clements and, and co, are still kicking ass. And I know Fair Harbor is hiring away in Denver again. And they are back to the office and have an amazing culture and environment. Not to pitch the old one. <laughs> are you still involved at all? In the, in the no, company. no involvement, no involvement, no ownership stake, etc. Cool, just the, you're totally you're out. Pr- proud, a proud alum. Yeah, proud <laughs> alum. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and what do you? So, what? Do you, just to ask quickly too. What are you? Uh, what are you focused on these days? So these days, my my brother and I are getting back in the seat again. We're working on a, a fintech idea. We're not at the stage where it's worth pitching you all on it yet. And then also doing a the tried and true. And I hate it, stereotypical angel investing here and there. <laughs> That's what everybody does, right? That's hard to say. But, no, you, but Lawrence, what happens then is you do enough of that, and then you come to the conclusion you actually have to start your own venture fund. And then you end up with a podcast, right? So <laughs> that's how it all actually happens. Yeah, you're just on step one right now. Yeah. I would say that's only if the, the first ones come back good, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you know you're really not good at it, and this is not a career. No, then you just jump straight to the podcast piece of it, right? Because you can always have a podcast. There we go. So, well, so Lawrence, let's get to why we're here today, right? Um, you know, it sounds like maybe you alluded to it at the start, but what we really want to hear is what's the biggest lesson that you've learned in your career and how did you learn it? So my biggest lesson, it's not going to be tech related. It's going to be actually the company I started before Fair Harbor, which was a crouton company for salads, believe it or not. I'd quit my job on Wall Street. My mother one day was complaining to me about croutons while I was figuring out my next thing. I bought all the croutons from the local stores, realized they all taste terrible, and thought, I can be the guy that gourmetifies this category. I'm going to be the king of croutons. And my biggest lesson in the crouton world that was applicable to Fair Harbor as well is that it doesn't matter how many taste tests you have or the equivalent in tech would be, you know, wireframing sessions with potential customers. Until your shit is on the shelf, you really don't know if people want it. And you can spend all day making the packaging perfect and the product taste awesome, at least from the feedback you've given. 
but none of that really matters until it's out in the wild. And my experience with my crouton company was I was whipping up my recipes for my five different flavors every day, bringing them over to my friends, shipping them to my parents, asking for the honest feedback, and eventually perfecting my recipe. But when I got them on the shelf, and I did, I will say this, I sold them into 40 stores, turned out nobody wanted to buy them. And when I think about how that applied to Fair Harbor, some of the guys that worked with me at Fair Harbor had at one point built out the perfect product. It took one year of development. They launched it out into the wild only to find out that all the user feedback, which was non-user feedback, it was just you know people playing on Framer, et cetera, wasn't applicable in real world. And when I think about Fair Harbor, when we launched Fair Harbor, before we got our first software out the door, we went and talked to a bunch of different potential clients. And when you're asking people questions about what they want, they really don't know what they want. And they also are inclined to ask for the world because they've got this pain point that they think can be solved with your product. And they're trying to come up with a solution for this problem. And until you really build it and get it out there, you just don't know the answer. And you end up running around like a chicken with your head cut off trying to figure out what people want. So my my biggest lesson, both in croutons and at Fair Harbor, was get something out the door as quickly as possible into the actual market to see if this is something people want to buy. Because otherwise, you're wasting a hell of a lot of time, usually screwing around on a spreadsheet, trying to make some math equation work that doesn't really matter unless people buy your goods. With croutons, I spent so many hours on Excel trying to map out okay, here's going to be my long-term wholesale price of you know cost of goods sold. I can sell this to Whole Foods at XYZ. Spending all this time on a damn spreadsheet when I should have just gotten the croutons out the door, I don't know, marked it at a price and then found out really quickly that, guess what? No one wants to buy these croutons. Yep. Laura, I mean, that, that story resonates so strongly with me for a few reasons. One, I actually... We're in the process of moving, and I actually found our original pitch deck from like 2011. We wrote for the company I started, and we were so wrong about almost everything right at that point of what yeah. was in there. And we had like seven years of financial projections, right, with like 30 lines or something. And it's just amazing how how wrong and unnecessary those things are at that point. But that brings me back to. We still meet with, and I obviously made this mistake as well, and you made it the first time too, so many companies that are like, we need this money, we're going to go build heads down for 18 months, and then we're going to go get our first customer type of thing. And Adam and I almost always walk away from those exactly for sort of what, what you're talking about. Why do you think founders get into that trap? And you know, other than listening to this podcast, how can they avoid that trap? I think the number one reason people get into that trap is they're always building for scale. Always. Everybody's always trying to solve for what happens when this thing takes off. We should build for the day when we hockey stick and we go from one user to a million users. And the reality is that more often than not, when you talk to people that are building for a million users on day one, they never get to user number two. Because user number one throws the product out the door. 
And that kind of goes back to getting it out in the wild. But I think it's a uh, apprehension to doing things manually, which is actual work. You know, the, the things that suck about startups are doing the tedious tasks that are actual work. Like, you know, the, the, not everything can be automated on day one. Having to sit in front of your computer and do something that you think is just a menial task is really half the battle. And more often than not, I think a lot of these companies are trying to solve for scale. And I don't want to do menial labor or things that I think are menial labor like manually copy pasting stuff, actually having to type, uh, actually having to call a customer because we're going to be at a place where our web marketing engine, SEM, is just going to take off. We're never going to have to pick up the phone and call people in order for us to get our product out the door. So let's just start working on SEM on day one. And <laughs> the reality is that you should be building for customer one. And then maybe when you get from number one, you build for 50, 50 for 100. And then eventually, just naturally, you end up migrating your product to focus on scale, automating what needs to be automating, and get to that million users. But more often than not, I think it's the 18-month timeline is, I need this thing on day one to be able to handle infinite amount of volume. Yeah, I think, you know, hearing that, and Adam, you know, would love your reaction too, Thinking about some of the recent companies we've invested in, that's actually, I think, a characteristic. Actually, the two last deals we've done is the founders were really, really good at getting their first customers, right? And actually proving value and building from there. And you, and you look at the product and it's like, you know, it's got some rough spots and you ask them like, oh, shit, we got to, yeah, actually, this ends up as a CSV and I got to then send it to the client, you know, type of thing at the end of the day. But the most important thing is they have people paying them, even though there's all that shit in the back end that doesn't work. And I think that that's a real advantage when you actually build that way, as opposed to here's this beautiful thing, but we don't know if anyone will pay us for it yet type of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing that comes to mind when I think about building for you know, scale and automation is when you do the manual tasks, you quickly figure out what actually needs to be Yes. Programmatically built. Yeah. And you may have some idea that I'm going to launch XYZ feature and it's going to create a ton of manual labor for me. And ultimately it may create none because nobody needs it. And you just saved yourself a hell of a lot of time automating something that no one would ever use. Well, I, I just say, Chris, before I get my, my thoughts on that, I'm just disappointed that Lawrence next thing is in fintech and he hasn't gone back to croutons. I mean, I, <laughs> no, Adam, Adam, he's going to put croutons on the blockchain. Oh, there, there you go. Crouton, crouton NFTs, maybe something yeah, like that. That's uh, actually the secret. Yeah. Every bag you get an NFT. <laughs> that, that, that's great. Eventually an ICO will happen with Emmy's croutons. The, that was the long play, the long game. <laughs> that was the long game. You, you saw it all coming. Well, I think, you know, one of the questions I have on this and, and thoughts is around the type of funding that you take is, do you think affects this? So I think a lot of Founders, if they raise a lot of VC money up front, feel like I've got to really go build for scale in a way that somebody who can either bootstrap, maybe raise even a small round from VCs who are aligned or friends and family around, feels more empowered to take a little bit of the slower route like you just described or getting it right before you go scale. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. And the idea being that, hey, I took a ton of money. Now I've got this valuation hurdle that I got to 
hit in order to go raise my next round. And the valuation hurdle is going to be a multiple of what I raised the first round at, which means that in your head, you're thinking, oh, shit, I have to actually be at scale in order to raise my next round and have this continue, this company continue. I absolutely think that's the the right idea there. That's what that dirty trap is, is people raising too much and then effectively, or maybe it's not even true, but effectively they think I need to skip all the manual parts because I'm not going to be showing enough progress and I won't be able to raise again and I'm screwed. And in a lot of ways, you're screwed no matter what then. I think that's, that's absolutely true. How are you thinking about this in your next startup, Lawrence? I mean, you guys have obviously, you've, you've achieved significant scale already with, with Fair Harbor. You had great you know, financial success and a lot of flexibility there. How do you feel about going back in and doing that you know, tedious manual stuff that you, you had to go do way back in the day? Uh, totally up for the tedious part, no doubt about it. So I think that's really the only way you learn. And I'm really excited about getting back out there and picking up the phone and, and calling customers myself, getting that, that feedback. I am looking forward to the day where co- client calls me screaming at me because the site's down. And then I get to call our CTO and scream at him <laughs> because I'm tired of getting screamed at. I, I really miss that anxiousness. And that's the really fun part about the the beginning days is every day is different and you kind of wait to see what's going to happen when the phone rings. That's fantastic. I mean, that's what it's all about at the early stages and embracing that is I think the, the, the key to success. And certainly as a multi-time, a multiple time entrepreneur, um, that's a great litmus test to say, am I ready to go for the next thing? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Well, Lawrence, thanks so much. This is great. I really hope we can have you back on one day when you tell us that, that you are determined to re- realize your dream of being the king of croutons. I want to see that happen. <laughs> the world needs a better crouton. Um, thanks. It, how can uh, folks who listen follow along with, with what you're doing with the new company? Is it out there yet? Is there any way they can they can uh, follow along? Not much out there yet. Uh, just follow me on LinkedIn. I guess I've got no other social media. And uh, eventually some posts will come out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Lawrence. Really appreciate it.